everybody. Good evening. Glad to see you all tonight. We are in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46 is where we left off last week. Isaiah 46. We'll do, hopefully, Lord willing, 46 and 47, because they're both relatively short chapters. Um, All right, so we started the second half of Isaiah. Chapter 1 through 39 is the first half, uh, and that's all about Judah's state of spiritual disarray, God's promise to punish them with Assyria. The lingering threat of the Assyrian Empire and Judah's stubborn defiance in the face of that threat. They're going to continue being obstinate, continue being sinful and not change their ways. No matter how much God begs and pleads and cries and orders and commands and so forth, they're going to continue not obeying until the very last moment when Assyria has invaded and they're about to consume them. Then they finally offer up a prayer of penance and then Assyria is taken out of the picture and completely taken off the board. And so for half a second they think, Ah, that's it, problem solved. And then suddenly Babylon starts to bubble and starts to rise and starts to uh, grow. And so that takes us to the second half, which obviously doesn't end in chapter 54. It goes through 66, but that's for later. So we've studied chapters 40 through 45. Yeah, we finished 45 last week. 40 through 45 is all about introducing three special servants that God will use to work out the things he's going to talk about for the rest of the book. So the first servant is Judah. This is God's servant of sin. This is the one who are his people that have fallen into complete idolatry and disarray and ungodliness and so forth through the principal subject matter of the whole book. The second servant is Cyrus. When Judah's sin becomes so irreparable, God is going to send them into exile in Babylon and then just kind of just leave them there for a while. Let them just suffer in time out until they learn their lesson, which eventually they will, and it will be through this other servant, Cyrus, the future ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire, he will consume Babylon and eventually, through various processes, you can read about that in Esther and other places, um, let the people go home back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah and Esther and so forth, and Ezra. So, uh, Judah, servant of sin, sin. Cyrus, servant of liberation, we'll say. That's sure, that says liberation. And then the final servant is Jesus Christ. I don't know why you even bother writing on the board. Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah to come. He's not known by Jesus Christ in the book, but it's Jesus Christ. It's the Messiah to come. This is the servant of redemption. This is the servant who will save them from their sins. He will save them from the immediate punishment their sins are going to put them into. He will save them from the eternal punishment their sins are going to lead them to if they don't change. So it's, it's a, a really um, interesting case of building one thing on top of another thing. You have this problem here that's going to have punishment in Babylon. It's going to lead to this solution here, which is going to lead ultimately to this thing here because the people in in Judah are going to go over into Babylon. I don't know why I'm involved. They're going to go into Babylon. Cyrus is going to bring them back out. And when they come back to the promised land, the Messiah is going to be waiting for them, proverbially speaking. He won't be literally there waiting for them. They have a few hundred years in between. But that's the idea. That's the way Isaiah paints the picture. You people are here. You're going to go there. You're going to come back. And the Messiah will be here for you. And so those three servants, Judas, Cyrus, and Jesus Christ, are the, the main composition of this last half of the book. Chapters 46 through 48, just a few chapters that we're going to look at for the next few weeks, deal with God promising to prevail over Babylon. 
on behalf of his people using Cyrus. You might get a reference here, a passing glance here of the Messiah to come, but it's these two who are the focus here. As we go through this second half, what you're going to notice what Isaiah does is he'll always keep one eye on Judah, and then he'll shift between Judah and Cyrus and Judas and Jesus. Judas and Cyrus and Judah and Jesus. And he'll do that back and forth throughout the text. Judah is the central figure. He's they're the stake on the burner, but then the sizzle is Jesus, and the thing in between, the potatoes on the side, is Cyrus. So that's the whole full course meal that you're getting here. So right now, these next three chapters, 46, 47, 48, is all about Judah and Cyrus. When you get to 49 through 54, we're talking about the Messiah. So that's when he's going to come in kind of as the star of the show. So now... God will prevail over Babylon. You're going to go into Babylon. You're going to think it's all over, but don't worry. God's going to save you. God's going to prevail because God is God, and Babylon ain't it. So that's chapter 46. Let's dive in. Isaiah 46, verse 1. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon your, the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaded, and they are a burden to the weary beast. We introduce it by talking about the gods of the Babylonians. The ones whom they will pray to for deliverance and salvation and protection when Cyrus comes knocking to invade the city of Babylon. They will beg for Baal to save them. They will beg for Nebo to deliver them. And they will carry them around all over the place looking for the right spot to set them, these idol statues of their gods, in the hopes that they can zero in on the right divine frequency to deliver them salvation. But it won't work. Your gods will bow to this ruler to come, Cyrus. And ultimately, through Cyrus, bow to God. Verse 2. They stoop, Baal and Nebo do. They stoop and they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Beautiful irony here, because even though it hasn't happened yet, it's alluded to at the end of this first half, and it will happen in the immediate future of Judah. When Babylon comes to invade Judah, you read about this in Jeremiah, uh, the people will be in Jerusalem. They will have to watch as they're carried away into exile. They'll watch their temple burn, and they will watch the remnants of that temple, the, the precious ornaments and artifacts in that temple, the golden lampstand and the, so forth, be carried away into exile with them and to be locked away in a chest and paraded out and used in various parties and, and, and uh, feasts and things like that. You read about it in Daniel. So they will have to watch their precious ornaments be taken away, carried on carts and driven away. And they're going to wonder how God could let this happen. That's God's lampstand. That's God's temple that's burning. Well, listen, you built the house. God never even said, I have to have a temple. That was just all Solomon's idea. But that's, not, that's not, neither here nor there. The idea is they're going to have this idea of, oh, God's house is gone. God's artifacts are gone. And God's going to save them. Yeah, okay, I'm going to make it right. Because Babylon is going to watch their gods be carried away too. I'm going to balance the scales of justice. Hearken unto me, verse 3, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who were born by me from the belly, carried from the womb. How does God frame himself in this verse? I'm asking you. How does he view himself and depict himself in this text? As a mother, he, in the most nurturing and caregiving way possible, the father presents himself as a mother. He's a spirit. He isn't actually a father in a, in a physical sense. He's not physically a mother in a, because he's a spirit, not a physical being. But he is often depicted in the male sense. He refers to himself by the male gender. He is a father, but he will often illustratively describe himself with those nurturing, caregiving, gentle terms. 
to a people that in the same context he's talking about smacking around because they're not obedient, spanking them on the butt all the time. He also says, but when you come to me, I will nurture you and I will care for you and I will cradle you and swaddle you and change your poopy diaper because I love you, God says. So I'm going to do those things for you. Verse 4. And even to your old age, I am he. Even to the gray hairs will I carry you. I have made and I will bear you. Even will I carry you and I will deliver you. Why is God even saying this? It seems so random. Like we were talking about one thing. Now we're totally changing the subject. Go back and look again more carefully in verse number one again. When we were talking about the gods of Babylon. Who's talking here? The God of Judah. Talking about the gods of Babylon, how they will bow and stoop, and they were, what does it say in verse 1? Upon the beasts and cattle, and the carriages which carried them were heavy laden. Who's doing the carrying? The servants carrying the gods. Then God, after he opens that idea, he flips it and he says, now to Judah. My people whom I see carrying, I've carried you in, in my belly, and I delivered you, and I swallowed you. But the idea is that I'm going to hold my baby and carry my baby. Babylon over here, they have to carry their gods around. God says, I carry you around. Who would you rather have? What's a sweeter deal? Even to your old age, I will carry you, he says in verse 4. And I'll bear you and carry you. And like, unlike the beasts that had to carry the Babylonian gods around, I won't get tired carrying you around. So there's your contrast. Now he, he uses the contrast, verses 1 through 4, in a poetic way. And then because Israel is a very hard-headed race of people, he just has to spell it out for them in verse 5 and following. To whom will you liken me? I'm showing you the contrast. Babylon's God's being carried, me carrying you. So to whom will you liken me and make me as an equal? Or compare me that we may be alike. Find me another God that you can say, well, this God is also like God. These gods have to be carried. I carry you. Find me another God who will carry you. You can't. Find me another God where you can say, oh, I don't want Jehovah with all of his rules and his, all of his expectations and all of his commandments and all the things we have to do to be faithful to him and him only and all of that. But here's this other God over here. Let's call him Frank. Not Frank. Let's, let's not call him Frank. Let's call him Fred. Here's this other God over here, Fred. And Fred will also carry me. And he doesn't have all the rules and expectations. Fred doesn't exist. There's just Jehovah and a bunch of pretenders. Verse 6. So what have you got if you don't have God? I've got a bag full of gold, and I've got silver that I put in the balance, and I've got a goldsmith that I can hire, and he can take that gold, he can take that silver, and he can form and craft and melt me into the shape of a god. And then I can make that god and fall down and worship that god. Yes, you can, and it won't do nothing for you. It won't protect you. It won't hear you. It won't carry you. It'll just sit there and stare at you. Verse 7. They'll bear him on the shoulder, this God they make. They'll carry him. They'll set him in his place, and there he will stand. And from his place, he will not move because he cannot move. Otherwise, God, God, on the other hand, can move, will move, does move on behalf of you. But this God cannot do that. You'll cry to him, but he can't answer. You'll beg for salvation, but you'll stay in trouble because he can't deliver you from it. Verse 8, remember this. Not what is to come, but what he's just said. Remember what I've just said to you. And show yourselves like men. In other words, think rationally, think soberly, think obviously. What is better, a God that you make or the God who made you? Which God should you serve? Bring this to your mind, you transgressors. 
Verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. I feel like I've over... I've overtaxed this text from Isaiah 46. I've, I've used this a lot in sermons and in, in devotionals recently to the point where maybe it's lost a lot of its gusto and a lot of its, its effort. I try to, when I'm teaching, I try to hold some things back because I know I'm going to preach that. Or if I'm preaching, I'll hold something back because I know I'm going to teach it. But I've just done a lot of teaching about God and idols and stuff lately. So this text has always been around. But I don't want you to lose the import of this. I don't want you to lose the, the impact of this text. These people are actually worshiping. They're falling down and they are worshiping and they are expecting a golden statue to save their day. This, isn't, this is not just some hypothetical. This is delusion and it's really happening. And God, the real God, the God who made them, who they used to worship, is up here saying, Hello! I'm still here! And they know He's there. These are not atheists. These are people who know Jehovah is real. Who have seen the works of Jehovah who know he actually did split the Red Sea, who knows what he can do, is capable of doing, and still they want to worship that hunk of stone, or they want to worship that golden statue over there. Verse 10. I alone can declare the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done. I can say, quote, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God can quote the future, with certainty, because God is in the future. God can tell you exactly what has happened and why, because God's in the past. And he can make it relevant to you now, because he's in the present too. He's atemporal. He's immaterial. He is forever and ever shall be. There's none like him. It's incomparable. You make a statue, you make a God, even if you could, even if you could breathe life into that statue and make an actual living thing out of it. Its birth would be its beginning point. Its beginning point would be that moment. It would have no past. It wouldn't know the future. It would be living in the moment just like you are. But God has been and ever shall be. He says, I can tell you exactly what will happen, and I know what will happen because I'm the one who's going to do it. Verse 11. Calling a ravenous bird from... I'm, I've been told I'm too intense when I teach on Wednesday nights, and I apologize. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not going to change that. Verse 11. Calling a ravenous bird from the east... The man that executes my counsel from a far country. These are things he predicts and he knows are coming. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. See, this, how does God know the future? Because he's the one who's going to do it. And you could say, well, okay, I can do that too. I can say tomorrow I'm going to go to Walmart. Yeah, well, you might be dead tonight, James 4. Your life is just a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But God is here tomorrow too, guaranteed. So if he says I will do it, you know it because he's already doing it. He just hasn't shown it to you yet. That's the difference between you and God. I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, planned it, predicted it, formed the whole universe around it. I will accomplish it. Verse 12. This is, this, he, God, all this is, apart from showing the obvious contrast between himself and idols, this is planting seeds for when he, when he eventually circles back to, and I'm about to blow up Babylon, who haven't even risen yet, by the way, when he's writing this. They're not even big yet. But I'm about to blow up Babylon. So when you're in Babylon, you're worried and you think no one can ever defeat Babylon. He says, I've already predicted their fall. It's going to happen. Verse 12. My Bible says, hearken unto me, you stout-hearted. Does your Bible say stout-hearted? Stubborn. Stubborn. Much better. Because stout-hearted sounds like a compliment. That's a stout-hearted person. He's, he's like a warrior. And I guess it carries the same connotation, but we use it positively. 
This is not meant to be positive. You bullheaded people. You, you, you prideful, heels dug in the sand people who won't listen to the obvious and do what is clear. You stubborn people, listen to me. You that are far from righteousness. Verse 13. Oh, does your Bible end, verse 12, does it say righteousness in your Bible, or rightness in that? Righteousness. Righteousness? Okay, good. What about verse 13? I bring near my righteousness. Is it the same word? Yes. See, this word is justice. I bring, uh, I, if he says, I'm bringing my righteousness, that sounds like a positive thing. It's not meant to be a positive thing in this context. This is God saying, you people, I am bringing my justice to you. The hammer is falling. Get out the way. Get out the way. Because when it hits, it's going to hit you. Unless you repent and get out of the way. I am bringing my justice. It shall not be far off. And my salvation shall not tarry. These are two different things. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel in my glory. God promises salvation. But what has to come before salvation? They have to go to Babylon. Keep going. There's no chapter breaks. This is all one thought. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. 47 verse 1. Now, we started with Babylon, and then we quickly got sidetracked, which makes it sound like an unintended thing. This was the plan of God. But it, we quickly moved away from Babylon to the idols of Babylon, segueing to God's predominance over all of them. But then now we're circling back to Babylon, because that's really the point. We're talking about you people are going to go into this captivity, and you're going to think it's insurmountable, you're going to think it's hopeless, but I will pull you out, because what is Babylon to me but an ant I haven't crushed yet, and I promise I will crush them. So come down and sit in the dust... Your Bible probably says something similar. It's just a cultural expression of mourning and sadness to Babylon because they're about to get kicked in the pants. Oh, virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground. Why do I have to sit on the ground? i got a beautiful throne right here. You're not about to. I'm going to take that away. There is no throne, oh, daughter of the Chaldeans. For there shall no more, for you shall no, you shall no more, sorry, be called tender and delicate. You are this ravenous, ferocious lion. That's how your enemies see you. You are this... Uh, powerful, insurmountable force. You sit on this huge throne of your conquest of the whole known world. But in one fell swoop by the providence and power and the planning of God, God's going to go boop, and knock you off your high horse. And then what will you be? How does your Bible... That's right, you'll be crying like a baby. How does your Bible end? Verse number one. Read the last clause. Anybody. Same thing, same thing, same thing, everybody said. Okay, good. Well, why would they why were they calling themselves tender and delicate? Their enemies were not calling themselves that, but they're calling themselves that. They believe themselves to be prim and proper and beautiful and elegant. We're gonna get this even more clearly later on in this chapter. The De Belle of De Ball is how they thought of themselves. The most beautiful, prosperous people at, at the expense of disgusting brutality in their conquest. But God says, I'm taking it all the way. You're not going to be with hands clean. You're going to get dirty because I'm going to knock you down to the ground. Verse 2. You're going to take the millstones and grind meal. Uncover your locks, make your legs bare, uncover your thigh, pass over the rivers. Hike up your skirt, he says to Babylon. He's, he's um, emasculating them. You're going to be doing women work. No offense, ladies, this is what the text is. It was for the ladies to gather the rocks that would be used to grind the flour and so forth. The ladies would have to hike up their skirts and cross over the river as they walked. The men wouldn't have to do that. The ladies would have to do that. So God is saying to Babylon, you who are taking people into exile, yourself will go into exile. Hike up your skirts. You're about to cross the Euphrates. You're about to head east to Persia. 
You're going to be yourselves taken away. You're going to be doing servant work. You're going to be doing women work. Verse 3. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame will be seen. And I will take vengeance. I will not meet you as a man. The King James says that. End of the verse 3. What does your Bible say? I will not spare you. I will spare no one. What does your say? Arbitrate with a man. Okay. Uh, saying that's a little more clear. Because mine almost makes it sound like, is God saying he won't be a man? No, he's saying you won't be a man, Babylon. You're not going to approach God with any kind of position of authority or, or um, any posturing or any kind of presence to you. You're going to come at me. You're going to come at God as a little scared girly man, not as a man man, is what he's saying. Again, no offense to the ladies, but culturally, this is what's called a sick burn. Okay, verse four. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of Hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. And mind you, Isaiah is writing this. God is speaking this. He is saying it to a people who, at this exact moment, are worshiping every other god but God. But without having to say, you should not worship them, you should worship me, without saying it in that specific clear term, what God says is, you're going to go into this captivity because you're worshiping those gods, and when it's time for you to get out, I and I alone will get you out. And I and I alone will be credited for it. It will not be any of these other gods that will do it, it will be me. Well, if that's what he's going to do, who should I be worshiping now? He, he leaves it as an obvious thing. It's just like this rhetorical lecture without being a rhetorical question. He just gives the statement and he leads you to the obvious conclusion. You draw the conclusion. Of course I should be worshiping God. No one else could do this. Who is my redeemer? Who is my rescuer from Babylon going to be? It's not going to be this stupid hunk of wood that I cut down and covered in gold. It's going to have to be God, the host of the, the Lord of the hosts, the Holy One of Israel. Now that's who will save me, it's who I should worship now. Verse 5. So sit there silently. Get in the darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. <laughs> Same parallelism. Same idea from a few verses ago. Now we state it here in a different way. You're no longer be called tender and delicate. You're no longer going to be called the Lady of the Kingdoms. You're no longer going to be the belle of the ball. Verse 6. I was wroth with my people, very angry with them. I have polluted my inheritance. I'm going to destroy Judah, not completely obliterate them, but knock them off, off their, their national perch, completely take them out into Babylon. So polluting my inheritance. I have given them into your hand, he says to Babylon. You did show them no mercy. Upon the ancient have you, uh, have you very heavily laid the yoke, even to the oldest of them, these people who were put in your care. Look, forget for a second that Babylon is this empire, and empires, by their nature, consume kingdoms. That's how you become an empire. You start as a kingdom, you take over another kingdom, now you're two kingdoms, which makes you an empire. And a king over two kingdoms is an emperor, okay? So the very fact of being an empire means they must eat kingdoms. So they have eaten Judah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, also set out of your mind, that God is allowing Babylon to consume Judah as punishment for their idolatry. Forget that for a second. All that matters is, in this moment... Judah is under the occupation of Babylon. They are subservient to Babylon. That is now their government. They are now the subjects of that government. And how is that government treating them? It doesn't matter that it's the will of God. It doesn't matter that it's the plan of God. What matters is you have control over them, and you are, in my Bible, showing them no mercy. Is that what yours says? Yes. You are not being good governments. You are abusing your people. Your captive people, sure, but your people. The ones you have control over. By his providence, regardless of the reasons, 
He's given you control over them, and you have mistreated them. Upon the ancient, even to the oldest, you've given them weary, heavy burdens to bear. And you said, in your pride, in your arrogance, like every other big superpower to the present age has ever said, I shall stand forever. I shall be this lady forever. I'll always be this pretty. I'll always be this powerful. I'll always be this predominant. And it just never happens. Over and over and over. Napoleon thought, I'll be emperor forever. And he wasn't. They put him down. And then he came back and he said, I will still be emperor forever. And they put him down again. Over and over. You think you can kill him and then they come back and then you kill him again. And then they stay dead the second time or the third time. However long it takes, eventually they stay down. America right now is saying to itself, we will always be the biggest, baddest, most dominant superpower. We will not be. Eventually, if the world stands long enough, we will be knocked down. If it happened to the Holy Roman Empire, if it happened to the, the great United Kingdom at its heyday, if it happened to the Roman Empire, name one, name them all. The fact that you name them is, the, is proof positive they're not around anymore. They all fall. Babylon is no different. I'll be like this forever. So you did not lay these things to your heart. Neither did you remember the latter end of it. You couldn't contemplate how your days might end. How it might end with hardship and suffering and punishment by God. So therefore hear this, verse 8. You who are given to pleasures, who dwell carelessly, you don't have any concern for those under you, who say in your heart, I am and there's none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow. This is what they're saying to themselves. Neither shall I know the loss of children. I'm going to win every war. I'm going to have every conquest. I'm going to go wherever I want to go. Do whatever I want to do. And I will always be the biggest, baddest, most powerful empire on the block. But enough about America. Verse number 9. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood. He just takes their words and spins them around. Oh, you say you won't lose children? You say you won't lose a spouse? You'll lose them both. Whatever you say you're going to have, I'm going to take away. They shall come upon you in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and your great abundance of your enchantments and all the, all the pagan mysticism that you rely on, all the things that are giving you the false sense of security that you're going to be okay forever because they've read it in the stars. Who made the stars? He's coming for you. Verse 10. For you have trusted in your wickedness, you have said, none sees me. Well, we all see you. You're really big. You're really bad. We all see you. None are on my level. None sees me eye to eye. No one's standing here on my level to see me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, it has perverted you. You've outthought yourself. You've outtaught yourself. And you have said in your heart, I am and none else beside me. Who do we know in the Bible that will, in his greatness, describe himself as saying, I am, and there is none beside me. Who? And who's saying it now? Ain't God. And so they're about, to be, they're about to be reminded who the one is that deserves the title of I am and none else beside me. This is, this is why 46 spends so much time with God saying, I am, not these idols. I am. There's none else beside me because Babylon's going to say it, and Babylon ain't God. Verse 11. Because of that, therefore, shall evil come upon you, and you shall know from whence it rises. You're going to know where it's coming from. You may not fully appreciate it. 
but you will have my people there, and you will have my Daniel there, and others who will point out and will identify your coming disaster and calamity. So you'll know, whether you believe it or not, you'll know, you, you will not know like the particulars of it, but you'll know in the sense that uh, God's people will be in your midst prophesying and predicting, but you won't believe it, so you won't see it coming. And mischief shall fall upon you. My Bible says mischief. What does your Bible say? Mischief, uh, it's like in the middle of the verse. Yeah, it will be uh, like if you ever, oh, you, you know the expression, the fog of war. Somebody described to me the fog of war. What does it mean? The, you're in the middle of the conflict, you're in the thick of it, and you don't know exactly how much the enemy has left in the tank. You, you don't know exactly what's going on right now. It's, it's, it's in the haze of uncertainty. And, it, well, literally, the dust hasn't settled after the battle, so you can see, you can tally up whose side is on uh, what, you know, position of strength or, or so forth. You have this, this calamity, this conflict that will happen, and suddenly the people will be like, I don't know what's going on, I don't know where we are, I don't know what our positions are. Babylon's collapse will be in the midst of a fog. They will not know what happened. It's literally what will happen is Cyrus will, you have, oh, look, here it is. It's all clear as mud. You have Babylon, all right, you have, and then all right, the Tigris and the Euphrates, right? And Babylon, okay? What, uh, what Cyrus will do, Cyrus is over here, and actually over here because it's the means and the purpose. Cyrus will come in, and he is going to divert the, see, the, what the Euphrates River does, the Euphrates River runs through the city of Babylon, and they have impenetrable walls. I mean, anything can be penetrated if God wants it to be. But from a human perspective, huge, giant, thick, I mean, so thick, they had chariot races on top of them. They were so humongous. Thick, impenetrable walls. But they had gates uh, that ran under it. They were like for um, uh, the, the water to pass through. So the water of the Euphrates would pass through it. Well, what Cyrus does is he diverts the water of the Euphrates just enough to bring the water level down. And his soldiers just slip in through those gates in the middle of the night when everybody is partying and having a good time as they were wont to do in that devout, uh, debauched city of, of Babylon. So they're all partying having a good time. And here's the city of Babylon. So they sneak in. And they take over this entire half before these guys even know there's a fight going on. By the time they realize we're under attack, half the city's already fallen and the other half is on its way. So it'll just be this complete chaos and cluster of insanity. They won't even know what's going on. A mischief, the King James says, will fall upon you. The, the uncertainty of battle will just completely take over. And you will not be able to put it off. End of verse 11. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly. The kind of which you have never seen before. In fact, they have seen it before. It's just they were always on the other side of it. Now they're the recipients of it. Verse 12. So, God says, almost, if not almost, just actually mockingly, he says, so stand now with your enchantments. Stand with your multitude of sorceries, which you have labored from your youth. If it so be, they shall profit you. If so, you may prevail with them. Let's hear what your soothsayers have to say. Let's hear what your mystics have to predict. Let's hear what your stargazers are telling you is coming. What can they predict? All they ever said, it always happens, they, all they ever said was good news. Whenever the king would call his soothsayers and his stargazers, they would always come in, they would always read the position of Venus and the Neptune and whatever, and they would always have good news for the king. You know why? Because if ever they had bad news for the king, they were fired. And being fired meant you lost your head. You didn't just lose your job. So they would always bring good news. Well, one day it's going to come where Cyrus is going to start his invasion, start marching his way southward. 
And the king is going to send in his soothsayers. He's going to bring in his advisors. He's going to call his stargazers. And they're going to say, stars say good news, boss. Stars say everything's great. I'll take that raise now. I'll, everything's fine. No problem here. And then one day, the river will be diverted, and then they'll be gone. And if you think about it from the soothsayer's perspective, they have no reason to tell the truth. Because if they tell the truth and it's bad news, they're going to die. If they don't tell the truth and they lie, they're going to, they're going to die anyway. So you might as well hold on as long as you can. I'm not trying to advocate lying. I'm saying I get it. Okay? So that's what they're saying. That's what's going on here. Show me your soothsayers, what they may predict. It's not going to help you. 14. Behold, they shall be as stubble. Who shall be as stubble? Verse 13. Your prognosticators, astrologers, stargazers. Did I read verse 13? Sorry. 13. They are wearied in the multitude of councils, astrologers, stargazers, prognosticators. Stand up and save from these things that shall come upon you. He's calling on all these astrologers, stargazers, people who look at the position of the moon and so forth, those sort of soothsayers. See if they can give you good news to save you. They can't. None of them can. What are those people to God? What are the prognosticators and the soothsayers? They are, verse 14, the kindling that will start the fire. God's basically saying, I'm going to kill them first and then kill all the rest. And the fire shall burn them, shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame, and there shall not be a coal to warm at, nor a fire to sit before it. The whole city is going to go up in smoke. And it's not going to be the kind of smoke where you get some marshmallows and you get some chocolates and you get some graham crackers and you have a little s'more. No one's having a party here. The whole city is going up in toast. I crossed my metaphors. It's going to be toast going up in smoke. Verse 15. Thus shall they be unto you with whom you have labored. That's your merchants from your youth. They shall wander everyone to his quarter. The phrase quarter means a portion of the land. They'll, just, they'll be scattered, adrift, gone. And none shall save you. End of chapter. We still have time. Any comments or questions? Yes, sir. I mean, obviously, if the soothsayers had any element of truth, they would have fled. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. If they actually knew what was coming, they would have got out of town. And that would have been the first clue to a king to know to get out of town. It's like in Batman Returns, which I referenced a few weeks ago. That scene <laughs> at the end of the movie, we still have time, so I can talk about Batman. That when the, the penguin is, is sitting at his army to blow up Gotham because they had the rockets trapped in their back, and then suddenly they start coming back, and he gets nervous, and then he looks around, and he sees his, his lady up in the booth, and she's got this great Tim Burton shot. She's got this black shroud, and she just kind of disappears in the darkness. I love that shot, and the penguin goes, and gets freaked out and jumps and takes off. Same idea, right? If the king sees his prognosticators fleeing en masse, he's going to think, they have prognosticated something bad. They have portended my doom. But they always said... Peace, 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 where there was no peace. How ironic. Anybody else have a comment or question? Anything that I can talk about segueing into Batman would be swell. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive, giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.